Chapter Three of the Titan by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Chicago Evening. After his first visit to the bank over which Addison presided, and an informal dinner at the latter's home, Cowperwood had decided that he did not care to sail under any false colors so far as Addison was concerned. He was too influential and well-connected. Besides, Cowperwood liked him too much. Seeing that the man's leaning toward him was strong, in reality a fascination, he made an early morning call a day or two after he had returned from Fargo, whither he had gone at Mr. Rambud's suggestion, on his way back to Philadelphia, determined to volunteer a smooth presentation of his earlier misfortunes, and trust to Addison's interest to make him view the matter in a kindly light. He told him the whole story of how he had been convicted of technical embezzlement in Philadelphia, and had served out his term in the Eastern Penitentiary. He also mentioned his divorce, and his intention of marrying again. Addison, who was the weaker man of the two, and yet forceful in his own way, admired this courageous stand on Cowperwood's part. It was a braver thing than he himself could or would have achieved. It appealed to his sense of the dramatic. Here was a man who apparently had been dragged down to the very bottom of things, his face forced in the mire, and now he was coming up again, strong, hopeful, urgent. The banker knew many highly respected men in Chicago whose early careers, as he was well aware, would not bear too close an inspection, but nothing was thought of that. Some of them were in society, some not, but all of them were powerful. Why should not Cowperwood be allowed to begin all over? He looked at him steadily, at his eyes, at his stocky body, at his smooth, handsome, mustached face. Then he held out his hand. Mr. Cowperwood, he said, finally, trying to shape his words appropriately, I needn't say that I am pleased with this interesting confession. It appeals to me. I'm glad you have made it to me. You needn't say any more at any time. I decided the day I saw you walking into that vestibule that you were an exceptional man. Now I know it. You needn't apologize to me. I haven't lived in this world fifty years and more without having my eye-teeth cut. You're welcome to the courtesies of this bank and of my house, as long as you care to avail yourself of them. We'll cut our cloth as circumstances dictate in the future. I'd like to see you come to Chicago solely because I like you personally. If you decide to settle here, I'm sure I can be of service to you and you to me. Don't think anything more about it. I shan't ever say anything one way or another. You have your own battle to fight, and I wish you luck. You'll get all the aid from me I can honestly give you. Just forget that you told me, and when you get your matrimonial affairs straightened out, bring your wife out to see us. With these things completed, Cowperwood took the train back to Philadelphia. Eileen, he said, when these two met again, she had come to the train to meet him. I think the West is the answer for us. I went up to Fargo and looked around up there, but I don't believe we want to go that far. There's nothing but prairie grass and Indians out in that country. How'd you like to live in a board shanty, Eileen, he asked banteringly, with nothing but fried rattlesnake and prairie dogs for breakfast. 
Do you think you could stand that? Yes, she replied gaily, hugging his arm, for they had entered a closed carriage. I could stand it if you could. I'll go anywhere with you, Frank. I'd get me a nice Indian dress with leather and beads all over it, and a feather hat like they wear, and... There you go, certainly. Pretty clothes first, of all, in a miner's shack. That's the way. You wouldn't love me long if I didn't put pretty clothes first, she replied spiritedly. Oh, I'm so glad to get you back. The trouble is, he went on, that that country up there isn't as promising as Chicago. I think we're destined to live in Chicago. I made an investment in Fargo, and we'll have to go up there from time to time, but we'll eventually locate in Chicago. I don't want to go out there alone again. It isn't pleasant for me. He squeezed her hand. If we can't arrange this thing at once, I'll just have to introduce you as my wife for the present. You haven't heard anything from Mr. Steger, she put in. She was thinking of Steger's efforts to get Mrs. Cowperwood to grant him a divorce. Not a word. Isn't it too bad, she sighed. Well, don't grieve. Things might be worse. He was thinking of his days in the penitentiary, and so was she. After commenting on the character of Chicago, he decided with her that so soon as conditions permitted, they would remove themselves to the western city. It would be pointless to do more than roughly sketch the period of three years during which the various changes which saw the complete elimination of Cowperwood from Philadelphia and his introduction into Chicago took place. For a time, there were merely journeys to and fro, at first more especially to Chicago, then to Fargo, where his transported secretary, Walter Wepley, was managing under his direction the construction of Fargo business blocks, a short streetcar line, and a fairground. The interesting venture bore the title of the Fargo Construction and Transportation Company, of which Frank A. Cowperwood was president. His Philadelphia lawyer, Mr. Harper Steger, was for the time being general master of contracts. For another short period of time, he might have been found living at the Tremont in Chicago, avoiding for the time being, because of Eileen's company, anything more than a nodding contact with the important men he had first met, while he looked quietly into the matter of a Chicago brokerage arrangement, a partnership with some established broker who, without too much personal ambition, would bring him a knowledge of Chicago stock exchange affairs, personages, and Chicago ventures. On one occasion he took Eileen with him to Fargo, where, with a haughty, bored insouciance, she surveyed the state of the growing city. "'Oh, Frank!' she exclaimed when she saw the plain, wooden, four-story hotel, the long, unpleasing business street, with its motley collection of frame and brick stores, the gapping stretches of houses, facing in most directions unpaved streets. Eileen, in her tailored spick-and-spanness, her self-conscious vigor, vanity, and tendency to over-ornament, was a strange contrast to the rugged self-effacement and indifference to personal charm which characterized most of the men and women of this new metropolis. You didn't seriously think of coming out here to live, did you? She was wondering where her chance for social exchange would come in, her opportunity to shine. Suppose her Frank were to be very rich, 
Suppose he did make very much money, much more than he had ever had in the past. What good would it do her here? In Philadelphia, before his failure, before she had been suspected of the secret liaison with him, he had been beginning, at least, to entertain in a very pretentious way. If she had been his wife then, she might have stepped smartly into Philadelphia society. Out here, good gracious, she turned up her pretty nose in disgust. What an awful place, was her one comment, at this most stirring of western boom towns. When it came to Chicago, however, and its swirling, increasing life, Eileen was much interested. Between attending to many financial matters, Cowperwood saw to it that she was not left alone. He asked her to shop in the local stores and tell him about them, and this she did, driving around in an open carriage, attractively arrayed, a great brown hat emphasizing her pink and white complexion and red-gold hair. On different afternoons of their stay, he took her to drive over the principal streets. When Eileen was permitted for the first time to see the spacious beauty and richness of Prairie Avenue, the North Shore Drive, Michigan Avenue, and the new mansions on Ashland Boulevard set in their grassy spaces the spirit, aspirations, hope, tang of the future Chicago began to work in her blood as it had in Cowperwood's. All of these rich homes were so very new. The great people of Chicago were all newly rich like themselves. She forgot that as yet she was not Cowperwood's wife she felt herself truly to be so. The streets, set in most instances, with pleasing, creamish-brown flagging, lined with young, newly-planted trees, the lawns sown to smooth green grass, the windows of the houses trimmed with bright awnings, and hung with intricate lace, blowing in a June breeze, the roadways a gray, gritty macadam, all these things touched her fancy. On one drive, they skirted the lake on the north shore, and Eileen, contemplating the chalky, bluish-green waters, the distant sails, the gulls, and then the new bright homes, reflected that in all certitude she would some day be the mistress of one of these splendid mansions. How haughtily she would carry herself, how she would dress. They would have a splendid house, much finer, no doubt, than Frank's old one in Philadelphia, with a great ballroom and a dining-room where she could give dances and dinners, and where Frank and she would receive as the peers of these Chicago rich people. "'Do you suppose we will ever have a house as fine as one of these, Frank?' she asked him longingly. "'I'll tell you what my plan is,' he said. "'If you like this Michigan Avenue section, we'll buy a piece of property out here now and hold it. Just as soon as I make the right connections here and see what I am going to do, we'll build a house, something really nice, don't worry. I want to get this divorce matter settled, and then we'll begin. Meanwhile, if we have to come here, we'd better live rather quietly, don't you think so?" It was now between five and six, the richest portion of a summer day. It had been very warm, but was now cooling. The shade of the western building line shadowing the roadway, a moated, wine-like air filled the street. As far as the eye could see were carriages, the one great social diversion of Chicago, because there was otherwise so little opportunity for many to show 
that they had means. The social forces were not as yet clear or harmonious. Jingling harnesses of nickel, silver, and even plated gold were the sign manual of social hope, if not achievement. Here sped homeward from the city, from office and manufactory, along this one exceptional southern highway, the Via Appia of the south side, all the urgent aspirants to notable fortunes. Men of wealth who had met only casually in trade here nodded to each other. Smart daughters, society-bred sons, handsome wives came downtown in traps, Victoria's carriages and vehicles of the latest design to drive home their trade-weary fathers or brothers, relatives or friends. The air was gay with a social hope, a promise of youth and affection, and that fine flush of material life that recreates itself in delight. Lithe, handsome, well-bred animals, singly and jingling pairs, paced each other down the long, wide, grass-lined streets, its fine homes agleam with a rich, complacent materiality. Oh, exclaimed Eileen all at once, seeing the vigorous, forceful men, the handsome matrons and young women and boys, the nodding and the bowing, feeling a touch of the romance and wonder of it all. I should like to live in Chicago. I believe it's nicer than Philadelphia. Cowperwood, who had fallen so low there, despite his immense capacity, set his teeth in two even rows. His handsome mustache seemed at this moment to have an especially defiant curl. The pair he was driving was physically perfect, lean and nervous, with spoiled, petted faces. He could not endure poor horse flesh. He drove as only a horse-lover can, his body bolt upright, his own energy and temperament animating his animals. Eileen sat beside him, very proud, consciously erect. "'Isn't she beautiful?' some of the women observed, as they passed, going north. "'What a stunning young woman,' thought or said the men. "'Did you see her?' asked a young brother of his sister. "'Never mind, Eileen,' commented Cowperwood, with that iron determination that brooks no defeat. We will be a part of this, don't fret. You'll have everything you want in Chicago, and more besides. There was tingling over his fingers, into the reins, into the horses, a mysterious vibrating current that was his chemical product, the giving off of his spirit battery that made his hired horses prance like children. They chafed and tossed their heads and snorted. Eileen was fairly bursting with hope and vanity and longing. Oh, to be Mrs. Frank Algernon Cowperwood here in Chicago, to have a splendid mansion, to have her cards of invitation practically commands, which might not be ignored. Oh, dear, she sighed to herself mentally, if only it were all true now. It is thus that life at its topmost toss irks and pains. Beyond is ever the unattainable, the lure of the infinite with its infinite ache. O life, O youth, O hope, O years, O pain-winged fancy beating forth with fears. End of chapter 3